Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hello and welcome to this summer episode from our Beckett Talks podcast series. Today, Dr Peter Mills, a senior lecturer in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities, talks to us about the general history of Roundhay Park, but mainly looking at the history of pop concerts in the park and how that influenced the culture of Leeds as a city. Thank you, Dr Peter Mills. Hello there, my name's Dr Peter Mills and this talk is kind of quite lead-centric, I would say. It's a little investigation of the history of pop concerts in Roundhay Park and Leeds is kind of green lung. So we'll be thinking a little bit about the history of the park, a little bit about who actually came and gave these performances and what we can learn from studying this narrative arc of concerts from 1982 to 2019. What it shows us about the city, but also what it tells us about the way popular music events on this scale have changed over the period. So I'll say a little bit about Roundhay Park, first of all. It was actually a private estate bought by the Nicholson family in 1803 and was in part constructed by men returning from the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, which is why the lower lake, or big lake, at Roundhay Park is actually called Waterloo Lake. And the big lovely field where I take my dog for walks every morning uh, that separates Oakwood from Roundhay Park is called the Soldier's Field. It's that connection with giving work to men returning from the Napoleonic Wars. And they effectively built what we see today. So we have the two lakes, the mansion, which was the Nicholson's family home. I always think every family in North Leeds has got a story about the mansion, birthday party or wedding reception or something. It's a real you know, community staple. St John's Church on Weatherby Road, the other side of the park, beautiful Church of England church. It's um, redundant now, but still magnificent construction. So it was a private estate, but it was bought by the city in 1871 by an MP, actually, a guy called John Barron, B-A-R-R-A-N, and he's commemorated in the park through Barron's Fountain, which uh, you can find sort of in the centre of the park, just above the big lake. Very beautiful structure it is. And his contribution is commemorated inside. There's like a sort of matchbox version of the <laughs> the Pantheon in Rome. There's a beautiful cupola with a, the hole in the centre to let the light in. And there's an inscription which records Barron's beneficence in helping uh, the city acquire uh, Roundhay Park uh, and we're all very grateful to him as we are to George Corson who was the landscape architect who kind of fashioned it into a more public space rather than a private estate because indeed the park was open to everybody in the city and that promoted the development of transport links out from the city centre and the south of Leeds up to this bucolic spot. 19th century Leeds wasn't a particularly pretty place. Uh, Charles Dickens was famously rude about it. But here was an opportunity for the citizens of the, uh, of the metropolis of Leeds to get away from the soot, to get away from the industrialisation. And consequently, this, the popularity of the park encouraged the development of popular culture, and it became a kind of tourist destination, really, associated with high days and holidays. It was opened to the public by Prince Arthur, in 1872. You can go online and find reports and etchings of that particular event. And it became the People's Park 
really. I think that's fair to say. And even today, there are remnants of the park architecture, which shows that it was set up for musical performance. There were a host of bandstands, four of which still exist. If you go up to the park, you can see them. Plenty of open space, which has been used for all sorts of musical events. But I guess we can focus in our little study here on the arena. Now, it's the arena that has seen all these major musical events take place. And it's a gift to musical performance because it has a natural acoustic. Okay, and the Greeks understood this, didn't they? If you get the shape of the performance space right and where the audience is sitting, that's going to be advantageous to the people at the back and everybody will feel like they're involved. Because remember, this is pre-amplification. You know, there are no Marshall stacks or huge PAs or anything. So the music had to be robust enough to be played and heard outside initially. That would mean brass bands and music of popular taste rather than the classical repertoire. You know, you go to the town hall or the, the Grand Theatre to hear your Brahms or your Puccini. And it wasn't just plenty of other things have happened in the arena. It's not just these sort of uh, these concerts. In fact, very frequently, its main use really is community activities. So cycling club, athletics events, cricket. I was down there this morning, actually, and the wicket is still you know, protected in the centre of the arena. That's why there's a pavilion there. If you know the park, it's to do with the cricket. Children's Day, which was a big event in the city slightly before my time but there's some beautiful films you can see on various websites and probably on YouTube too. The Children's Day, big event for everybody, a real big memory for my parents generation. Military tattoos, you know, places that needed the big space to create this sort of visual spectacle. For those of a certain age, even Just Sans Frontier, the international version of It's a Knockout, Eddie Waring and his dipstick. An episode of that was filmed in the park, July 1976. And again, you can find little fragments of that online, which is quite delightful. But sadly, also in the 70s, the infrastructure began to decay. Kind of the outdoor toilets were closed and vandalised and ruined. Barron's Fountain stopped being able to get a drink there. It was unplumbed, if that's a word. Waterloo Lake itself began to leak and was, was part drained, actually, while they tried to sort that out, which they did very well, it has to be said. Things like the Hermitage, one of the follies in the park, was demolished, Lakeside Cafe, and much to my juvenile chagrin, the fun fair was removed. People might remember the Helter Skelter there, I certainly do. And not great times, late 70s and early 80s, for Roundy Park, but our first arena sized concert in the park happened on Sunday July 25th 1982 and it was a concert by the Rolling Stones not just any old concert it was the last concert of their world tour of that time and research has shown me it was the last concert by the Rolling Stones for seven years they didn't play another gig till 1989 which is kind of amazing isn't it apparently um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were barely on speaking terms for most of the 80s that was why so it's kind of exceptional in a whole host of ways how did it arrive in um, lovely Round Hay Park then well what happened was promoter Kennedy Street who was the major promoter of music concerts and tours and so on in the late 70s 80s through into the 90s they were looking for a large open-air venue in the north and initially when they circulated a letter didn't just approach Leeds they approached three or four major cities in the north of England they didn't disclose the name of the band it wasn't say oh the Stones really want to come and play initially the initial approach name of the band was undisclosed and again my research has has told me why that is the gig was originally going to take place at 
Old Trafford in Manchester, the cricket ground, actually, rather than the football ground. But they were denied a licence. For some reason, Manchester City Council didn't want the gig. So they had to go looking elsewhere and contacted Leeds City Council and a gentleman by the name of Michael Johnson, who I had the great pleasure of interviewing on this very subject last year, was at that time the music officer for Leeds City Council. And he responded to Kennedy Street's approach and he suggested Roundhay. And so he invited the boss of Kennedy Street, was a guy called Danny Batesh, who was a club owner and DJ in Manchester in the uh, 60s and 70s and he'd moved into uh, promotion very successfully. So Danny Batesh came to Leeds. He and Michael Johnson just drove up from town and had a walk around the arena one afternoon and that was it. Danny Batesh said, yeah, this is great. Let's try and do it here. So it was as uncomplicated as that. You know, two blokes walking around the park saying, well, here it is. What do you think? It's great. Let's do it. But of course, it wasn't that simple because the idea initially met with opposition from a number of angles. There was political objection, there was a Labour council at the time, and Tory group leader in the council, a guy called Peter Sparling, uh, strongly objected. All this information I've got actually through research, from reading reports of the time, council documents, but also looking at the uh, Yorkshire Post and Yorkshire Evening Post archives. There was a political objection, also objections from local residents. West Yorkshire Police were also a bit jumpy about it and came up with all sorts of plans, which I've seen, to sort of pen the audience in to certain... This is all pre-Hillsborough and Heisel, of course. Planning to pen the audience in to certain areas and there were general fears about noise, congestion and bad behaviour. Now, this tells us something about how people felt about quote-unquote pop music and the audience for it and also the acts, etc, etc. Nowadays, pop bands like the Rolling Stones and others of their peer group are considered, probably quite rightly, as national treasures. But then they were still seen as, you know, sort of this unruly element of society attached themselves to pop music and, you know, a bit dangerous. So there were all these anxieties around it. So Michael Johnson told me that he called a meeting at which he showed the council how much money the concert would make for the city. So there was an agreement with Kennedy Street that on top of all the fees for hosting, etc., etc., there would be another £60,000 on top of everything else that was just like a bonus payment, shall we say, all strictly above board, of course, that would come directly to the city, that would be able to be spent on refurbishment for the park. Once Michael Johnson presented this and told them about the extra £60,000, people's minds were changed and he left that meeting with the agreement and that set the ball rolling for the event and the money itself set the ball rolling for the refurbishment of the park. So, you know, there's a lovely cafe down by the lake now. Monuments have been treated better. Friends of Roundhay Park kind of emerged just after this period. You know, a really dedicated group to looking after the park so all sorts of good things came out of this event to begin with the early concerts were simply tolerated quote-unquote because of the money but the long-term effects were extremely beneficial so yeah sunday july 25th the rolling stones and uh, by golly i've got the supporting bill here in case any of you were there this might jog some memories it was supported by the jay giles band who just they've been going for years actually but they just had a big hit with a song called centerfold that kind of had very late commercial success so they were a big draw english singer-songwriter joe jackson uh, probably some of you remember him and then opening the show were 
a great American blues band, George Thorogood and the Destroyers. Now, Thorogood at that point was like a real sort of young buck. He's kind of a grand master of the blues now, but this is nearly 40 years ago, so he was just starting out. And what was interesting about the concert was that it was an early start. One of the many conditions of the gig was that it had to be over by 7.30 in the evening. And the gates opened at noon, first band was on at 1, the Stones were on stage at 4.30. So the whole thing was done by 7.30. It was a daylight concert. That was one of the conditions that had been imposed on it, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? When you think about how important light shows and the big screens and everything are to concerts nowadays. You wouldn't dream of... When Ed Sheeran was at the park a couple of years ago, you would not have dreamt, would you, that it would be over by 7.30. That was when people were turning up. As I said, it was the band's last concert till 1989, and you can buy it on CD and DVD. It's kind of amazing, really. If you've got this far, you might want to uh, check that out. It's, I mean, I, I'm not that bothered about the Rolling Stones, but it is a great watch, that DVD. And the success of this event kind of opened the floodgates, if you like, and a whole succession of really quite amazing concerts came to pass in the park for the rest of the 1980s. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. The next really big one was uh, Bruce Springsteen, who came to play in the park Sunday the 7th of July 1985. And once again, just coincidentally, uh, maybe coincidentally, it was the last gig of his massive tour. And he was just about the biggest pop star in the world, or rock star, actually, in the world at the time. Uh, coming off the uh, success of Born in the USA album. No support for Bruce. He needed all the time to himself. Again, you can go online and you can find images and clips of this concert. £14 to you, Squire, to see Bruce Springsteen in the park. Again, promoted by Kennedy Street and Harvey Goldsmith. Got in on that one as well. He's the other you know, legend of uh, British music promotion from that era. Promoted Live Aid that same summer. Rolling Stones, I should have said, actually, it was £10.50 for the afternoon. So... It was uh, evidence that, you know, Leeds was learning to do this kind of thing really well. You know, there's the capacity, 80,000, the scale of the event, bucolic environment. It was well organised and it was well planned, both for the act and the audience. So all of the worries that people had didn't come to pass. Next gigs were in 1987. Again, Kennedy Street were the promoters. So that relationship between Lee City Council and Michael Johnson in particular and Danny Patesh and Kennedy Street, very important. It was that relationship really that made it all happen. And in 87, Roundhay was visited by Genesis, who again were just about at the peak of their popularity. Uh, June 28th, 1987, again a Sunday, all these gigs are on a Sunday. And their special guest that day was Paul Young who was uh, slightly past it by June 87. 
but uh, still, you know, a famous name, as he is till this day. And then in August, or Saturday this time, August 15th, 1987, Madonna came to Roundhay. Now, again, this is another first for Roundhay because that was Madonna's very first gig in the UK. So imagine that being your first show ever. And I was at the Stones uh, and I was at Bruce, but I was most excited to see Madonna because I thought she was it at the time. And I was right, actually. Uh, she was it for a while, wasn't she? Undeniable. And after she'd played Roundhay, they got the plane back to London from Leeds Bradford Airport. And on the Sunday night, she started a run of seven sold out nights at Wembley Stadium. OK, so that's telling us that Roundhay is now operating on this absolute mega scale. You know, not just like a little local, let's have a go thing. It's really functioning on that massive scale. It's getting the biggest stars in the world. And just to say something about how that kind of changed or maybe adapted the way the city was feeling about itself, possibly coincidentally, possibly not. The idea of the Leeds Film Festival was mooted in 87, 88 for the first time. Took a couple of years to develop. Um, you know, the Leeds' view of itself is starting to change. Well, you know, why shouldn't we have these things? Why shouldn't these people come to Leeds? Why does it have to be London or Manchester or Glasgow that we have to go to? And that was sort of underlined in red in 1988 when Michael Jackson played Bank Holiday Monday, 29th of August, 1988. £16.50 that was. So he was undeniably the biggest pop star in the world at that time. Extraordinary level of success and was arguably the high point of the concert era at Roundhay. Hailed in the press and in the council as a quote, a great advert for the city and a great advert for its businesses. And again, just to, to repeat my previous point, if you look at the itinerary for that tour, Roundhay Park was in the uh, elevated company of Wembley Stadium, Cardiff Arms Park in Wales, Aintree, the race course in Liverpool. These were the other places where he played on that British tour. So it just shows the company that they're keeping. In some ways, as I say, that was the, the, the high point, really. Simple Minds came in 1989, filled the park. Once you get into the 90s, we had some sort of returners, if you like. Genesis came back. Michael Jackson came back. He'd had his, his problems, shall we say, had started by then. So there was fewer people came to that one. 80, I think maybe even 90,000 at Round Hay in 88, about 65,000 in 92. But, you know, it's still not bad at all. So we had some sort of return engagements and that is revealing in itself in a way because it shows us there are only a certain number of acts at any given time that have the constituency to be able to fill a, a space like Roundhay. You know, you need a mega act uh, in order to attract a mega audience. And you too kind of stepped up to the plate. They played in 93 and 97 and they kind of fulfilled that role in a way especially with their emphasis on staging. The idea of the arena gig, the stadium gig, the, the mega event had really developed now. You go back and look at the footage or the pictures of Mick Jagger wearing a sort of fluorescent jacket so people can see him at the back with very sort of modest video screens. And you compare that with what you two were doing 15 years later, you know, sort of massive staging where the stage was reaching right out into the arena massive screens sometimes showing the band sometimes showing especially commissioned animations and films and stuff really sort of becoming an immersive experience on this massive scale so a very different kind of pop 
presentation that the size of the park enabled. Now, interestingly, a little sort of salutary tale. In the year 2000, there was a dance music event. The other thing to say, of course, is that tastes and fashions in popular music can change quite quickly. And in the 90s, certainly in the early 90s, the most popular form of popular music was actually electronic dance music. And you don't need a massive open air event for that, do you? You know, you need a club, you need a DJ. It wasn't about the visual spectacle. It was about the music or it was about, you know, kind of the, the social aspect of it. So I think that's interesting. And that's one of the reasons that Route sort of fell off the radar a little bit in terms of these huge events. And the Love Parade in July 2000 was not a success. And actually, ironically, realised some of the fears that people had originally held about having events in the park. Because, of course, it was a different thing. It was a weekender, so it was Friday to Monday. There wasn't a focus. It wasn't on a single day. Everybody wasn't there to see this particular act that would come on stage at you know, seven o'clock in the evening and then everybody would go home. People came and went, they had to sleep somewhere. It was, it was, as I say, a salutary experience for the city. So there was a period, there were six years where there were no gigs at all. And then Robbie Williams came and did two nights in September uh, 2006. And we were back to the classic model of the arena gig there with the lighting, fantastic staging, proscenium, uh, arch but also the walkway the thrust stage out to the audience with the radio mics freeing the artist up so they don't have to you know they're not sort of sort of tethered to the mic stand as was once the case so all these technological changes changing the nature of the spectacle and in a way giving an audience more bang for its buck because even if you were like halfway back you could still get close to the act so the concert stopped actually after 2006 and partly it was because of a lack of will to make them happen in the city, partly due to the economic situation that we, found, we all found ourselves in, which we haven't quite escaped, have we, let's be honest, from 2008 onwards. And also the park is used much more regularly for all sorts of events which monetise the space in these straitened times. And they're not as disruptive as these you know, kind of big bang events. So sporting events, regular or annual sporting events are more important now. Uh, there was also competition from 1999 to 2002. The Leeds Fest was, was at Temple Newsom and complaints then had that moved on to Bramham Park where it's been since 2003 very successfully. All year, all weather purpose built indoor arenas arose. Sheffield, that was an ice hockey stadium, of course, but it held its first gig there November 94, but it was uh, Roxette, I think, Swedish sort of power pop duo. Party in the Park, Temple Newsom, Leeds Arena, we love it, we love it. Millennium Square, Harewood House, all of these places now put on gigs on this scale, don't they? And Round A realistically only has a three-month window in which it could host acts. So you need somebody on tour at that particular time who's going to draw that kind of audience. So that's quite a small number of acts, actually. The Simple Minds road manager was quoted as saying when they played there, when you book Round Hay Park, that's what you get, a park, not a light bulb or a three-pin plug-in site. And that's kind of useful, isn't it? That's an interesting little reminder that you have to take everything with you, you your generators, everything. You get the arena, you get the spectacle, but you've got to sort of make it happen. It's not like going into a venue where there's certain things are already just sort of in situ. Changes in taste and style, as I said, not necessarily the same demand for huge outdoor shows of the kind seen in the park. Still perfect, though, for a special occasion one-off. Who could play there? Let's think. 
Paul McCartney. Why hasn't Paul McCartney played round eight? Come on, I need answers. Pink Floyd or Roger Waters or one of the one of the permutations. Taylor Swift, Justin Bieber. You know, there are people that that could do it. There have been smaller scale events on Round Hay. Came in September 2016, very successful, much more sort of family friendly. So I think that's that's a possible future model. And then, quite surprisingly, I thought anyway, just to sort of round the story off. Ed Sheeran came in 2019 at the end of his globally successful Divide Tour, 17th and 18th of August 2019. Did two gigs in Round A, Friday and Saturday, two in Ipswich. Unusual venues, you might say. Well, it's because he grew up in Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire, uh, or rather he was born there and spent the first few years of his life there. I think that's, that's right. And then he moved down to Suffolk. So that's why there were two in Ipswich. So it was just paying sort of, you know, tipping his hat to the, the two places he lived when he was a kid. And interestingly enough, I saw some of the documentation surrounding these gigs. And some of the 1982 objections were, were made again in advance of these two shows, which I found quite sort of amusing. So what's the future for Round A? Post-Covid? Who knows? But one thing's for sure, people will always want live music and Roundhay Park is a natural space for that to happen. And the city should be proud of it and continue to make use of it and look after it. OK, a little moral <laughs> to end on. All right. Thanks very much. I hope you found this talk interesting. As I say, there's a longer version of this, which I do periodically. In, in public and I'm also writing this essay about gigs in the park and the history of music in the park and if you want to drop me a line with your memories you can easily find me my email address is p.mills at leedsbeckett.ac.uk and I'd love to hear from you alright thanks very much everybody thanks for listening bye bye the Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday so don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.